Steve and Kevin break down the Q1 2016 metagame on episode 51 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 51 of So Many Insane Plays, our Q1 2016 metagame update. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. We have a couple of announcements before we get started. First, our Shadows Over Innistrad set review is coming up very soon. As of this recording, the whole set has not yet been spoiled, but it will be next week, and so we'll be recording very soon after. Steve, you've got a new, that is a first in a series of old school articles going up, yes? New slash old. This, <laughs> this article has been in the pipeline for some time, so it's great that it's finally launched. Go ahead and announce it. Yeah. Well, on VintageMagic.com, Steve's first of a long series of old school articles titled Back to the Future, an introduction to old school magic is now live. And uh, fortunately for you, Steve, the old school format doesn't change very rapidly. <laughs> so the, the information is still highly, highly relevant, especially to those who are interested in getting into the format, which is pretty cool. Yep. Brand new today. Yep. And you're about to take a trip, yes? By the time our listeners are listening to this, you'll either be playing in or about to play in the Asian Vintage Championship. Are you excited? Oh, yeah. I'm heading to the far, far east, or depending on your direction. And here in California, it's the west. Uh-huh. Uh, to Japan, it's it's going to be a great time. I've got a, a very active itinerary. I'm going to be traveling around Tokyo, south of Tokyo. And I'm really looking forward to meeting some of the hardcore vintage players in Japan. I'm going to hang out with Hiromichi Ito. Ito. And I'm going to have a great time, so should be awesome. a lot of fun. Yeah. And what's more, the VSL team will be doing an English language commentary of uh, via rebroadcast of the event on the normal VSL day. That is Tuesday, March 29. Now that is actually two days after the event will be concluded. So. If you want to stay spoiler-free, that's something you might try to do <laughs> on right. Sunday night and Monday. But if you'd like to see the tournament in action, take a, take a look at Randy's channel and the Magic Channel for VSL rebroadcast. I believe you said Randy and Efro and others will be participating. Yeah, I think also the Tokyo MTG group will be live-streaming it on Twitch. So I have right. to give a shout-out to them as well. But if you want to watch the English rebroadcast... Check out Randy. Uh, check out the VSL um, stream on Tuesday night. Yeah. The tournament only has you know a handful of players. I think it's 22 or 24 players, and includes myself, Iramichi, two Hall of Famers, and a, a bunch of other players who've come. But anyone who is a Hall of Famer, Vintage Champion, has qualified. Mm-hmm. So it should be. It's in the first place is a pretty sweet Mox Sapphire painting by Dan Fraser. It's a reinterpretation, um, right? Yeah. That's right. It's a recreation. And there are images. Yeah, there are images up on their website if you're interested. It's it looks pretty awesome. It, it would go nicely players, with your collection. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And they're giving the players a uh, a playmat of it. So Excellent. that's also yeah, pretty sweet. Do you know anything about the structure of the event? I mean, how many rounds will they be doing? Will it be straight Swiss? 
the tournament is going to be five rounds of Swiss plus a top eight. Okay, so it'll be a pretty healthy event with strong competition. Definitely. And we will certainly, certainly be talking about it in our next episode because we'll be recording shortly after you return for our set review, but we'll also be getting your tournament report there. I'm looking forward to that. So let's move on with our metagame analysis for the first quarter of 2016. Steve and I have gathered uh, a fair bit of data here. We've got 29 paper events represented from tcdex.net going back to the beginning of the year and 48 Magic Online daily events plus two premier events. So fully 50 Magic Online events to discuss. And we're going to do what we've done in the in the past when talking about the metagame and, and treat the paper and digital metagame separately because they do behave somewhat differently. But there are certainly some overarching trends to be had. I'm looking forward to it. Let's dive in, Kevin. All right. So as I said, 29 paper events. And if you now we're grouping decks in a, you know, sometimes uh, overly, I should say, generous way in some cases. So apologies that we're going to be having to talk about groups of decks uh, in broad strokes here in order to get the, the data to be useful. We'll dig into some specifics, of course, in, in certain cases. But Kevin, can you speak to how you classified these things? So before we get to results, just can you provide some description of what our classification schemes are? So do we aggregate things by shops, or do you want to get in that when you get into the results? Are there some broad ways that you can speak to that? Yeah, it's true. We're forced to aggregate things by some of the more popular nomenclature. So workshops is the biggest one and possibly the most egregious grouping. Uh, we will talk about some specifics in greater detail because there are some a couple of trends within the archetype. And the same goes for decks like Mentor and Grixis and, say, Oath. Th there are derivations within these archetypes that have been demonstrating trends, but we are forced to talk about them in the aggregate because of because otherwise the data would not be significantly large. So we have grouped these things together in some of the popular terms along those lines. Dredge is another good example but we can talk about some specific variants. And even Mentor. I mean, you've got mm -hmm. so many different Mentor variants. There's the Sylvan Mentor, the four, whatever, four-color Mentor that Rich Shea had popularized with and, and with Dragon Lord, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then there's yep. the more aggressive versions with Pyromancer. Then there's the ones like you play. They're in mm -hmm. the ones that have a Vryn Prodigy. So there's a whole you know diversity of strategies. There are others besides. But, but it's true. Ahead. It's true. As we've said in the past, when we try to group decks together uh, in ways like this, uh, we are assuming a little bit on the part of our audience, but also we're trying to group them in terms of how you would prepare for them if you were preparing against them. So while we know there is no perfect solution, we want to give as much detail as we can, but we also want to have meaningful statistical analysis. So for example, mentor, you you may legitimately prepare differently for Bant Mentor than you would, say, Jeskai Mentor with Pyromancers. And that is a legitimate concern, but it's a little bit beyond our scope to list out every possible derivation thereof in terms of tournament performance. So we're going to have to do our best. And if any of our listeners have some questions for us, then by all means, uh, send them in and we'll try to respond to them on the show. So with that said, in terms of appearances in top eights, the most numerous top eight category in paper was Mentor. Interesting. Out of, out of 29 
events, not all of which had full top eights published on TC decks, so so the math doesn't uh, line up exactly, but I have 155 total uh, appearances of different decks. Mentor had 32 of those places, followed closely and functionally equivalently by workshops with 31. So the paper metagame right now is heavily, heavily dominated by mentor and shops. What what percentage of the total number of decks in your sample does that for the population does that include? So well how many you said twenty nine events? So how many total decks is that? Yeah, 29 events. Well, that's the thing is the math doesn't work out. It's not 29 times 8 because we don't get a full uh, top 8 performance for some smaller events. And a couple of decks were not fully reported. But to answer your question as simply as I can, Mentor and Shops are both putting up about 20 to 21% of top 8 appearances. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of like 2007 when Workshops and Gush decks were kind of about 20, 25% of the metagame apiece. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. it is, and there's a bit of a fall-off. That's the other thing. The reason I haven't mentioned any other archetype yet is because the next best-placing archetypes are all grouped in the in the 6 or 7% range. Grixis and, and Dark Petition Storm both had 11 top 8 appearances in this data set. That's 7%. Oath had 9. That's 5.8. And the next one, ironically, is Keeper. Now, <laughs> we don't talk about Keeper very much on this show, but uh, it turns out that in terms of control decks... In terms of control decks, Grixis and Keeper are actually kind of neck and neck in the paper world, which is some, which is somewhat funny. And in terms of combo decks, wow. the next best performing combo deck at 4% was Gush Tendrils. There's so much conversation about Dark Petition Storm going on in the, the vintage community, but Gush Tendrils is making a solid showing and not very far behind Dark Petition, so... The rest of the decks are all below five appearances. Everything from you, Delver, Tezzeret, Did Bomberman. you include Landstill in your mentor uh, category? Because the Landstill decks usually have like two mentors. No, I tried to Blue. I tried to distinguish, but a couple of lists really, really stressed the boundaries. <laughs> so there's certainly a little bit of bleed over. In fact, there was one. There was one really interesting. Actually, I take that back. There are two really interesting lists that I came up with, which looked like hybrids of rug and bug. That would be deathrite shaman lists that also had young pyromancers, and those lists are pretty hard to categorize. But regardless, the numbers are very small. The, the takeaway certainly is that mentor and shops are vying for the most dominant archetypes by far in terms of paper appearances. And Dark Petition, which is getting a lot of press in the community circles, <clears throat> is competing neck and neck with Grixis Control and Oath wow. in terms of paper. Now, and when you call sorry, when you call Cape Keeper, you're talking about the bug like Time Vault deck, right? Or with Notion Thief? Uh, those Keeper decks take a lot of forms. <laughs> I just need yeah. it's it's usually four or five color control. And Interesting. they're sometimes time well, vault decks. They sometimes have a notion thief. Well, when when I think of keeper, I'm thinking of the I'm thinking of the deck that you played a couple years ago in the vintage championship to a top eight that had sort of right. abrupt decay, wasteland. You ran yep. key vault, right? Yeah, I did. I Jace. did. Yeah, I've seen quite a few of those decks in the dailies, you know, more than a handful. And there was one that I think top four at a premiere event in January. That, but they mm-hmm. were they're almost all bug. Mm-hmm. Let me let me graduate to the next the next tier of an analysis here. <clears throat> with paper events, unlike with Magic Online, there's a lot more variance in the tournament attendance, right? Your Magic dailies on online have a pretty consistent, albeit somewhat small, but pretty consistent player size. And then you have the enormous premier events, right? 
Well, your paper events vacillate pretty powerfully between eight and the mid 30s in terms of player counts. Sure. What that means is that some of these uh, results are a little more weighty than others. So I've created a metric that I just call the weighted appearances, where I took the tournament attendance, divided it by 16 players, and created a multiplying factor for a finish, meaning a finish with a 16-player event is weighted evenly, 100%. It's one-to-one. Uh, in an eight-player event, it's divided in half. In a 32-player event, it's doubled. That's my, that's the weighting system I came up with. It's not perfect, but what it does tell you is which decks tend to be performing better in larger events. And that shakes up the top a little bit. First place is still Mentor, but it separates itself a little bit from from Mud. Now, the metric I've come up with says 47 and a half weighted appearances, which, again, it's it's a semi-arbitrary method. So it's appearances per 16 players in a, in a tournament, basically. Oh. So you have to take it with a little bit of grain of salt. This is not a one-for-one one metric. But that 47 and a half as compared to 44 for Mud, so putting a little bit of distance, if you recall, the pure appearances was 32 and 31. So Mentor tends to be performing slightly better in the, the larger the event is. Interesting. And then the next two decks, the next three decks are the same, but they differentiate themselves a little bit more. So Dark Petition comes in at third place with 19.1 in terms of weighted appearances. Oath with 15, Grixis with 14.5. So Dark Petition is also doing a little bit better in larger events than its nearby brethren, Grixis and Oath. So now we get a top three that's that's matching the conversation in the community a little bit more. Mentor and Shops, again, still vying for first and second. Dark Petition in third place, putting a little distance with it, depending on how large the event is. This starts to give you a picture of if you're going to a, a sizable vintage event, the uh, the top three or four decks are pretty clear at this at, with this analysis. But if you want to win an event, <laughs> then there's one more way to look at these results. And that is who has the most wins, right? So of of all the events that are reflected in my data, Mud actually had the most wins with seven as workshops. Mentor with five. So again, they're vying for first and second there. And in third place with wins is Oath with three. No other deck had more than one in this data set. And that includes Dark Petition. Wow. But but this the sample size isn't huge, but that's still interesting. Yeah. Well, almost 30 events. I mean, it's it's getting up there. So it's it's pretty clear. Mentor workshops are vying for one and two, no matter how you slice it. There are several decks that can spike a tournament win. We've got a win in here by Stoneblade, Hate Bears, Delver, Bug. I mean, any given Sunday in Vintage, these things are still true. But if you want to make it through the top eight, through the top tables and then the top eight, you're going to have to go through multiple iterations of workshops and mentor decks. Yeah, <laughs> Now, ironically, I did another analysis, which maybe bears a little less weight, but it was it was a median finish for decks that had two or more top eight appearances in this archetype. Or I'm sorry, in this uh, data set, and then how highly they finished when they were represented by more than by two or more. The highest median finish was actually Bug with an, a median finish of second place. The second highest median finish with four appearances was dredge the median finish was third place in paper so in paper yeah so when dredge makes top eight it does quite well that's so interesting and the third place was mentor now it might sound like hey that's weird mentors in third place that's actually a really really significant number the median finish 
for the mentor decks in this analysis was three. But keep in mind that it it was 20% of this population. So the higher the higher uh, representation you get in the top eight, the lower your median finishes, or that is, yeah. the more your median finish gravitates to towards 4. the mean. Yeah. yeah, towards the mean. Whereas with workshops, the the median finish was four. Same numbers, but a full one place lower in terms of median finish. Now the difference between three and four might not sound like much, right? But with this kind of population size, with 30 decks in both groups, it's actually a pretty significant. It means that mentors are are faring better than workshops once they get into the top eights. But workshops still had more wins. So, you know, again, there's a little bit of coin flippiness in some of the, specif- the specificity here. And our sample size, again, as I yeah. said before, is not not very large. Yeah. But it does it does go to show you, with a deck like Bug, it only had three appearances in this data set, but the median finish was second place. That's is there that's is there a notable good. is there a notable performance by them in the data set like a big tournament you can mem- mention or reference? Yes, Bug had a single win. That's a, it's drawing up its average in terms of final finishes. A 22 player event in January in uh, Senegalia, a series called MUV. MUV number three this year. Bug was the was the first place deck. Second and third place were both Tesserator, which is interesting fourth place was was mud so there is one nice finish by bug on this data set but then a couple other second or third place finishes as well and just again for the sake of clarity in this particular example when we talk about bug what we're talking about is is, uh, aggro control mana denial death right shaman style decks in this particular case we're talking about Four death rights, four dark confidants, three snapcasters, and then several one ofs. A little bit of a toolbox here: a trigon predator, a scavenging ooze, a notion thief, Jace Vrin's prodigy, and an Edric spymaster of trust. With four ofs, mental misstep, force of will, and abrupt decay. This is a null rod deck with fully four wastelands plus a strip mine. So, pretty standard fare. I actually, I would say the the one of creatures are not standard here, but the the overall yeah, construction I mean, of that deck has pretty so representative. Many that deck has such varying configurations of creatures. I, <laughs> certainly. Even a Tassiger to whatever. Um, certainly, certainly. But this is a pretty pretty clear representation of that mana denial bug archetype. So, Steve, thoughts on the paper metagame since you're more familiar than I am in the, the, the intricacies of the online metagame. Well, what, is it, it, what does this say to you? It, you know, to be honest, I can't escape how different it seems from the, the online metagame. Just it's just strikingly Naturally. different. Um, in particular, Dredge seems to be a much smaller component of the the top finishes, but it does pretty well in your weighted and median sum um, in terms of placement and within top eights. It's true. Um, you know, for years I did those, and, and before me, Phil Stanton did these metagame bi-monthly or quarterly metagame reports, and this definitely reminds me of a metagame. It looks like a metagame that's shaped by the two pillars of shops and, and gush at the mm-hmm. top, and it just reminds me, I think, of a metagame that's defined by shops. Um, did you did you mention the the deck that had the most tournament wins? Yes, the wins are led by Mud with seven mud. in this yes, data set. Exactly. Yeah. And Mentor exactly. had five. Right. That that sounds right to me um, in terms mm-hmm. of what I would expect from the paper metagame. Um, super aggro shops, Ravager shops, and Hangerback Ravager. You know, those mm-hmm. decks seem to be just the best performing in the in the format. Um, 
I, I I do like the fact that you know you've got a lot of different strategies in, encompassed in the top. So you've got DPS doing not not terribly, right? It's doing pretty right. well, uh-huh. even in paper. Um, it's it yeah. It just it reminds me of all the historical vintage formats that I've ever seen where workshops are you know borderline fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it reminds me of, to be honest. Well, what I'm wondering is. You and I have been doing this for a while, and it's been pretty consistent since we've been doing metagame analyses and since we've been doing this podcast that workshops has been about 20% of the metagame, right? It right, vacillates, right. but that's just yeah. been a mainstay. Different different forms of workshops, you know, Mart, uh, Martello and, and Espresso Terranova, and uh, Terranova yeah. and yeah, all these different ones have come and gone. But um, what, what I'm wondering is... How many times over this time period was there another deck that was performing about equally well? A lot. It seems in like fact. I'm, no, actually that, a lot. But I that mean, deck has changed. That deck has changed over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are times where it's like Workshop is just the best performing deck, and part of it is what you're saying. Like, you know, Workshops tend to be about 20, 25 percent of the of the overall metagame in mm-hmm. any tournament. So, you know, for Workshops just to maintain its its overall presence means that you have 20 25% of top 8s. So, um, you know, part of part of what we're doing is tautological here because we're defining <laughs> workshop as any deck that has workshops in it whereas we're not aggregating blue decks or other decks in the same way. Um, but that said, you know, I can think of a number of times in the past like again if you go look at data from I think let's say the the fourth quarter of 2007, I think you'll see workshops are about 25% of I'm just off the top of my head, 25% of the metagame, top 8 metagame, mm-hmm. probably about maybe 30% of about 30% of wins, which is what you've got here. And then be, right next to it are all the gush decks if you aggregate them or grow or whatever. Um, with about the same 25% of top eights. But you also have metagames where workshops totally dominate. Workshops tend to go in these cycles that are really interesting. So you have metagames like the first quarter of, let's say, 2008, where where workshops, I think, were just tremendously potent and brutal. And mm-hmm. then you have metagames like right... The period right after Gush was unrestricted for the second time, which was, I think, the fall of 2010 and the winter-spring 2011. And that period was an incredibly oppressive period for workshops. I remember, I think it wasn't it in the 2010 Vintage Championship, there were half the top eight was workshops. And then the right. that spring... That spring workshops did so well. It base and, and Gush was unrestricted, but it basically pushed Gush out of the metagame. I mean, Gush decks weren't even playable, really. And and the deck that kind of broke the thaw on workshops was Brian DeMars's Ancient Grudge Keeper deck, and then and then another deck that emerged was Turbo Tesseret as the way to combat shops. But shops were that was a metagame where you had shops like let's say 25% of top eights and probably much more wins, but there wasn't really a close competitor. So you've seen mm-hmm. these metagames where you have like something that's like 25% of top eights, like let's say shops, and then so the next one's like 15 or 13%. But then you also have these metagames, and it usually only happens from what I've seen when gush decks are good. And then you have a gush, the gush deck and the mud deck is the two best decks. So that's that's all from memory. You know, if I had mm-hmm. more time, I'd go back and look at the data. But that's well. It, you said yeah. something in the midst there that I wanted to, to point out, and that is the we are separating gush decks in this analysis to some degree, and the best example of that is Delver. So in my summary information here, in terms of appearances, for example, Delver had not very many compared to the others, but six appearances. Okay, compare that to 32 mentors, 31 muds, 
if you group the mentor and the delver de together as gush decks conceptually then you start to see a picture of gush uh, separating itself from the pack then you start to see you're adding 21 and, and 4 you're getting 25 ish 26 percent of the metagame is gush decks and if you group things that way they are certainly the most successful uh pillar of the format gush yeah mm -hmm. interesting there's not as much variety in well, gush decks as compared to things like workshops in my experience yes those mentor decks can yeah. have some different colors so there's a little bit there but in terms of how they're attacking you workshop decks do have yeah. a broader range i think of strategies these days well it is interesting you know gush decks kind of go in cycles but there was a period a really fallow period for gush decks about two a year and a half ago where gush decks were only the delver decks and they were performing pretty well and they spiked mm -hmm. but two years ago they were pretty pretty low ebb and um you know people were into playing a bunch of other strategies and but but gush decks had all the you know the the delve spells really boosted them and then you had the printing of really the printing of mentor that mm. was so natural with them and then you've had more printing since then but not to mention restrictions but i think you know i, I just can't help escape the feeling these things just go in cycles <laughs> You know what? When, I when you have a when you have a broad enough lens or time horizon, rather. I, I agree completely, and I need to amend what I said a minute ago because I looked right past Gush Tendrils, which I had pointed out earlier was doing almost as well as its as its sibling, Dark Petition Storm. But if you add Gush Tendrils and Delver together to the Mentor numbers, yeah. which I should have done when I said it a second ago, you get up to almost twenty eight and a half percent. Well, I mean, it start, you, really starts to separate itself there in terms of a, a pillar comparison. Yeah, I, I, Gush Tendrils does not really exist on online at all. Uh, so, but <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm going back and looking at um, the 2011 Q2 meta, Vintage Metagame Report, which is free online. We'll post the link. But the best performing deck was Bob Jace, followed by Workshops. Mm -hmm. Bob Jace was Bob Jace was dominant. Do you have like, a percentage a, on that at that time? Yeah, Bob Jace. Interesting. In Q2 2011, Bob Jace had 37 top eight appearances, or 12.5% of total top eight decks. Whereas Workshops, the next best performing deck, were only 10.8% of top eights. No, sorry, Agro oh, Mud. Wow. Agro Mud was only 10.8%, and the third place was 9.5 with Dredge. So um, then it was then the fourth place, the fourth best performing archetype were Gush decks with 7.1% of top eights. <laughs> so yeah, and then Turbo Tezzeret with 7.1. And then fish after that. So we've we're in an oath after that. So we're very far away from that. <laughs> so there are a number of comparisons we can draw between paper and uh, online. In in fourth, I'm sorry, fifth place in my. Uh, just basic appearances was Oath was nine. It's kind of jockeying with Grixis, Dark Petition, and Oath for for three through five place, right? But I believe Oath in the paper world means a great deal different than it does online, because all you have to do is go to tcdex.net and do a quick little search for the card Void Winnower, mm -hmm. and you will find zero results in the paper world. Right. That, among other things, points to the fact that I believe the technology of Oath decks is behind in the paper world. I think there's more advancement going on in Magic Online, Online in terms of the Oath archetype. There may be more dynamism on Magic Online. It, this part of it's because there's just more data and more events. Um, True. 
Yeah, I, I did manage to pull up the Q1 2011 data. Matt, Matt Elias actually did this, this one event. And, and at that point, he had MUD was by far the dominant deck at 1-7 of 26 tournaments. So that looks very similar to your data right here. Interesting. 7 of 26. Yeah, that's a, yeah. That's a 20-ish percent number, right? Yeah. And Metal he said, of the winning decks, MUD decks... Of the winning mud decks, three reflect wins by Metalworker Aggro, which had five of the finals appearances, two by Forge Master, and one by Espresso Stacks and Nullrod Aggro. Huh. So that's an uh, example of uh, some of the the intra archetype ch- shifts that we've seen because the Metalworker is is definitely on the uh, the downturn right now in terms of representation. Metalworker and Forge Master, of course. Right. Some some past all stars that are are not in the top uh, appearances now. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and some of the debates are the same between sort of aggro and more control-ish. Do you use Null Rod? Because the decks that, the workshop decks that use that use Ravager and Arcbound Ravager are usually combated by those that have Null Rod. That's true. It's true. And Hangerback Walker, of course, was a, was a catalyst, an X-factor around the time of Eternal Weekend last year. And it's still around, but the format and the archetype and the interplay amongst workshop archetypes have adapted to it pretty strongly. So, so I'm just, I just opened Matt Elias' spreadsheet for Q1 2011, exactly five years ago. And as I mentioned before, the best performing deck was Mud, which was had seven wins, 22% of the overall top eights, and 30% of winners. So it's very similar to the data you have for yeah. Q1 2016. The difference, of course, is Gush decks were only 12.75% of top eights <laughs> compared <laughs> to the 25 they are today. And they were 13% of winners and 13% of finalists. Wow. Um, and Tezzeret decks were 9% right behind it. So I'll post the link to this in our That's our really interesting that workshops were 30% of the wins in both of those data sets. Yeah, That's today and exactly five years ago. <laughs> interesting. So these things really do go in cycles in some ways, except that's a metagame where Workshop was just dominant by itself. You know, we've we put different thresholds of dominance. I've I've mm-hmm. tended to think that a deck is dominant if it gets above forty percent of top eights. And and that mm-hmm. really doesn't depend on how many people play it in the event. Workshops tend to cap out about twenty five percent of overall, you know, people in a room. Mm-hmm. And so if they get to 45% of wins, that's really overperforming. That would be yeah. very alarming in my opinion. But workshops never, ever reach that kind of threshold. Even like it's the true. most degenerate workshop decks, like Trinisphere decks, never kind of did that well. In the in the in this Q1 2011 data set, he, Matt had organized it by archetype, but when he broke it up and aggregated it into Mana Drain decks, Mana Drain decks were actually almost a quarter that of the top eight. That is eights. really telling. That is a huge difference. That's that, yeah, there were 23% of that top eight. to what I was talking about in terms of the draw engines, because we, you and I know there's a direct correlation between the utility of certain draw engines and the utility of Mana Drain, because as we've said many times before, Gush and Mana Drain do not play well together. But right. I think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. All right, let's, let's go to the online. Let's see what's, what's different. All right, fair enough. So we are forced to, in evaluating Magic Online data, speak in slightly different terms, of course. We measure 4-0 decks in dailies as compared to 3-1 decks. Those 4-0 decks are analogous to wins, of course. Not a perfect analogy. 
but we really only have those two groupings. So in an effort to do some apples to apples as best we can, we've grouped our Magic Online results, those daily results, by archetype, and in this case by 4-0 finishes. And the top performing deck in terms of total appearances as 4-0 decks out of this data set is Workshops, with 15, that is 33% of the 45 4-0 decks we've got in this data set. There's only 45 because not every daily event has a 4-0 deck. Some have only three ones. The second place, and this is where this is where it gets really interesting, second place archetype, Magic Online 4-0 decks with 9 out of 45, or 20%, is Dredge. <laughs> In fact, Mentor doesn't even crack the top three online for this data set. And Kevin, the reason we, we focus on 4 of is because, at least in the data sets I've used in the past, when doing these metagame reports, the cutoff I've often used is 32-player tournaments mm-hmm. because that means you have to have at least... There are 33-player tournaments, so you have six rounds of Swiss, and there's some analog here. And though that if in a daily a deck goes 4-0, that's equivalent to being lock in, locked in for top eight. So the 4-0 data, I think, is, is just more valuable statistically and evidentiarily. Mm-hmm. So anyway, keep going. This 4-0 data is fascinating. We've got... So yeah. just to, to recap, we've got shops at 33% of the 4-0s, dredge at 20% and keep going third place with five out of the 45 that is 11 percent is oath and as i was alluding to earlier there's actually a lot of variation in the oath decks online we'll talk more in detail about that in a minute then tied for fourth place there are three archetypes with three uh 4-0 appearances in this 45 that is seven percent those three are steel city vault mentor and doomsday <laughs> now pay attention to what we said about the some of the pure combo decks in the paper results if you'll recall the top placing pure combo deck was dark petition storm yeah the next best performing pure combo deck was gush tendrils interesting i didn't even mention doomsday because it was way way down the list so there's this huge difference yeah in, just across the board except for workshops which are still you know vying for first and second place in both data sets but after that, there's just well, just the cat- la- catastrophic differences. <laughs> it's hilarious. There, there's a ca- there's a chasm. There's a there's a pretty wide gulf. And I, I seem to recall the last time we did this, we talked about how Montolio was like some absurd percentage of the of the results by himself. Right. Uh, one of the distinctions between paper and here is that paper events tend to be you know much more spread apart, whereas you know one person like a Montolio can make up a much larger percentage of an online daily event, a daily data. And yeah. in this particular case, I think the guy's name is TK55 or something like TCK, something like 55. I think he's probably all of these Doomsday decks, and <laughs> if not all of them, most of them, and not just the ones in the four O's, but the three ones as well. Yeah. And and so you have individuals, and his his Doomsday deck has like three Trigon Predator main deck and Yogmoss yeah. Will in the sideboard, uh, <laughs> but he but he's been playing that deck quite a bit. So so you have individuals skewing results in paper in online in ways that don't quite exist to the same extent on paper. Brian Kelly yeah. notwithstanding. <laughs> yeah. And you see that in some specificity when you factor in the odd oath deck that is primarily piloted by Rich Shea, although some others have picked no, it up. No, I, yeah, I, in fact, I think almost the most of the odd oath decks are not Rich Shea, but he certainly is a non-trivial number of them, in, in, at least true. in the new ones. Um, but, well, but the, it caught uh, on and became the most popular oath deck, and in, in, once you factor right. in the three one finishes, it right. became far and away the default oath deck, which is crazy compared to the fact that there are zero 
zero, literal zero void winnowers in top eights in paper. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, and, I mean, and to illustrate the point, though, how individuals can really play a key role. I mean, I think you have two dredge pilots, Vaughn Brothers and Bros and um, King Neckbeard, who are mm-hmm. probably like 80% of the pitch dredge lists, which yeah. constitute like half half of the dredge lists that we half of the nine that we looked at, and, and far more in the three one results. I mean, there's probably like yeah. eight eight daily you know top results with with those players alone, probably more. It, we, we are forced to acknowledge the pit. Sorry, we are forced to acknowledge the pitfalls of both of these data sets, right? There's a high volume in Magic Online, but it's more heavily influenced by individuals. And 4.0 is is a, a good, uh, that is to say, baseline per your prior, prior explanation. But it's not the best possible baseline, right? Because a win in a 32-player tournament in the paper world includes four or five rounds of Swiss plus a top eight. So it could be as many as seven or eight wins. So there's some apples to oranges going on here in both cases. Then we have to factor in the omnipresent budget discussions. Most of these paper events are proxy events, but budget still does influence a few people in both settings, and budget pushes you toward different decks online and in paper. Steve, yeah. what, do you make, what do you make of this great popularity of Dredge online? I, I want to I talk about that, but let's finish all the data first from the rest okay, of the Okay, okay. Well, if you march further down the 4-0 decks, we got past... Well, it, we shouldn't really talk further about the 4-0 decks just because yeah, yeah. no one else has more than two uh, performances after you get past Doomsday Mentor and Steel City Vault. The rest of the archetypes have two or fewer. If you Let's talk about integrating the 3-1 finishes. If you include three ones, so now we're talking about basically this is our equivalent to top eights in the paper world. All three ones and all four O's combined, you get a lot of results for one. You get 241 results in this data set. <clears throat> That's a pretty 70, big, yeah. It's pretty a pretty big, big number, pretty big sample size. 72 of those, fully 30% are workshops. Far more diversity in the archetypes, as we've already alluded to, but all the workshops together, 30%. Second place is still Dredge with 15%. Third place is still Oath, but it's 10%, and now it's shared with Mentor. So Mentor is distancing itself a little bit from the lower tiers, and it's actually tied for third with Oath once you factor in the three ones, which is interesting because it suggests a few things about Mentor not being able to not being able to win out in an event, but still being heavily represented. I'm speculating there. That's not a certainty. That's just something the data suggests. After Oath and Mentor at 10%, there's a pretty quick fall off. But it, I, I want to point out the pivot deck, which is Delver. So I didn't even mention Delver in the four O's. But once you get to in- integrating three ones, Delver is now in fifth place, 7%. So Delver is performing very well. It's just not winning very much. I mean, winning right. events, that is the equivalent of winning an event. After that, is a, there's a pretty steep fall off. Doomsday comes in at 4%. Well, so Doomsday was doing well in the 4-0s, right? Overrepresented, in fact, in 4-0 right, right. at 7%. When right. you factor in the three ones, it goes well, down to 4%, well, which suggests that the people doing well with Doomsday are really killing it, and no well, one else it, can do very well. <laughs> it, it's, they're not only killing it, but it's only very few people. So it's, yeah. it's, it's like the same person. They can't... You know, you can't populate if you're just one person playing Doomsday. You can't populate a lot of these top eights. That's a good point, right? If you're a couple of people and you're doing quite well, there's no other people to factor in. So you just become a smaller sample when you factor exactly. in three ones. You're right, and everything else is three percent or lower. So again, to review, all finishes. And bug is almost what? Where's Bug? One of your it's better. Down in the th- it's in the three yeah. percent group. Yeah. yeah. So to recap, shops at thirty, dredge at fifteen, oath and mentor tied at ten. <laughs> 
then Delver, and then Doomsday at four. I'm having some serious deja vu. Uh, didn't correct me if I'm wrong, but in our last metagame report, didn't which was almost a year ago, didn't we have shops at like almost fifty percent of these top these uh, results we on did. Magic Online? And we now did. they've fall, fallen to thirty, so the restriction has had some effect. And Dredge yep. was Dredge also dramatically overperformed online compared to paper, if I recall yeah, correctly. That's true. Um, it's true. It's a common refrain. So Dredge isn't doing or sorry, shops aren't quite as dominant as they were last time we talked about this. But they're still but, by they double still, the next yeah. they double the next one. But it but it could just be yeah. an aggregation feature. I mean again, if we took all the blue decks, meaning decks with like force of wills, they would far outperform the it's actually true. it's actually true. the, the force so, of will decks combined would probably be about sixty percent because a lot a lot of these dredge decks have force of wills so it'd probably be between uh-huh. 60 and 66 percent yeah and a lot of the discrete the tiny finishers the the twos and three percent so a lot of those are blue decks yeah you know, keepers tezzeret and grixis now grixis and landstill i mean grixis if you'll recall from the paper information was very high up in terms of pure appearances yeah. this was yeah. in third place with seven percent in paper but grixis in the Online world is only a three percent, a paltry three percent. Wow! And if you now we said if you add the gush decks and the paper finishes, you got to twenty eight percent of the metagame. Let's do the same thing for online. Start with mentor at ten percent and add delver right below it at seven. And what was it that we added to those two in paper? It was gush tendrils. Does not exist. Gush on. tendrils does not even exist online. We didn't have a single. Yeah deck that we categorized under yeah. that heading you know, so all- 28% gush in terms of appearances in top eights 17% gush online you know it's interesting i for years I was, i'm working of course working on the gush book and actually jaco has gotten me a lot more edits back and so the third edition will be coming probably within a couple months but i was looking at some of those old european like spanish italian gush tendrils decks or writer gush whatever decks mm-hmm. like the gush decks that have like um Talrand. Repeal or Talrand or um, what's the Rebora. other? What's yeah. the blue? The blue uh, uh, storm spell. Um, You're talking about Mind's Desire? No, the the one that mills you. Oh, Brain Freeze, sure. Yeah, Brain Freeze decks. And I always wondered, you know, would those decks translate online? And they just have not existed at all online. And it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's it makes you wonder what's going on there. But but yeah, I mean, these Gush Tendrils decks don't really exist online. And maybe it's because shops are so much a bigger part of the online field. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But the, but the, the thing is, I... I I have a hard time believing that the difference between 20 or 21% in paper for shops and 30%, that's not... Well, remember, remember it was 50% a couple months ago, six months ago. So it could be that there's a legacy legacy effect there. Um, If you combine Tendril's decks, though, which is something we haven't really said, in paper, that would be Dark Petition 7% and Gush Tendril's... 4%, 4%, we'd be up to... Oh, and you got to add Doomsday in there, right? Don't you think? Uh, I mean, sure, it's yeah. sometimes a tendrils, a tendrils deck, deck, so that's yeah. another 3% in paper. So that's 3, well, 4 is 7, plus 7 is 4. It's 14% so, tendrils decks. Yeah. No, it's small. It's, small. it's small. It's it's small. Like, this, the DPS decks are only 3% of overall 3 1s or 4 zeros. Yeah, this, that's what I'm that's saying. No, that's nothing. For a, tendrils and, decks online are just... No, 
Doomsday now, and, and T- DPS, which Eric comes out. Eric Froelich did win one of the premier events, I think the November November one with mm-hmm. DPS, but that's it's certainly not the trend here. Um, Definitely. I, I want to br- go down and break out some of these decks a little bit more. It's interesting that within the shop archetype, there's 72 decks, but more than half of them, 43%, are Hangerback Ravager shops. Yeah. And then the decks that, the decks that, and that's 18% of the overall. Three water decks, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got some of the porcelain shop decks, which use, you know, porcelain legionnaire and don't use Ravager or Hanger back, but they're just as aggro and they use things like, I don't know, null rods and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Then you have Forge Master is the next most popular with only six. So it's a huge drop off. You go 43 Ravager shops to seven porcelain shops to six Forge Master, and then you have a <laughs> smattering of the rest. You know, some shop depths, which is the new hot thing. Uh, Nick Detweiler uh, in Paper Magic has played that and uh, in a recent tournament. And Rich Shade, I think, 4-0'd an event and 3-1'd another event with the shops, this, this shop's depth deck. It's a stacks deck that has the Thespian Stage Dark Depths <laughs> combo with Expedition Map. So I expect, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, part of it is we're looking at the overall quarter, but we're also trying to say what's hot now. And that it, that yeah. deck is hot right now. And Dark Depths is making an appearance in the second archetype as well, right? Dredge. Yeah, it's all <laughs> yeah. over the place. I mean, the Dredge decks, so you've got 20 of the 37 are the traditional Dredge decks, which, you know, have... Nature's Claim, Wispmare, all that good stuff in the sideboard. Yeah. Um, sometimes even Claim's main deck. Uh, but there are a ton of them, 12 of them, that are kind of just pitch dredge with doom with Dark Depth sideboard. And then uh, more that have the Dark Depth sideboard, but have some Hermit Druid or some other weird stuff in there as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, actually there's... Sorry, you have 13 pitch dredge with, with Dark Depth sideboard. And then you have two more that have the Dark Depth sideboard and other combo pieces. And then... So... That's really Sorry, funny because yeah, go ahead. if you were to so if you take these dark depths dredge lists of which you said there's 13 and you take the shop depths decks there were four of those and we might have we might have missed one or two dark depths decks here I mean it's possible yeah you there's a, a dark, you, you I saw some, a dark depths control deck it, just like there a was pure a, there was a land still yeah, yeah. sim sim played that but um, anyway my point is simply if you add these things up dark depths <laughs> is making up seven percent it's huge of it's, of uh the three ones and four o's that's yeah that's more than i mean that's equivalent to delver think about that yeah. dark depths is showing dark, up as much as insectile aberration and vintage right now the dark depth <laughs> thespian thespian stage combo is a it, it's basically what illusionary mask was yeah. now it's it's a huge difficult to combat Mm-hmm. Uh, combo. It's it's the new illusionary mask. And in the decks that are playing it, workshops and dredge, it's orthogonal to all their other win conditions and tactics. Right. So it right. really it's, stresses your opponent's sideboarding and everything. You, can, yeah. you know, can, while we're on this, just can we just spend a second on how you combat this? Because it is a little <laughs> tricky. With if well, you have if you have a, go ahead. I, I would argue that Dark Depths has been around in numerous formats now for a while. So people who play right. modern. Well, but, no, okay. it's been banned in modern, but the, the, the people who play Legacy and people who play Vintage, the combo has been uh, implemented in a number of ways. But just in case any one of our listeners is not fully aware, <clears throat> when Thespian Stage came out, Dark Depths already had a combo in place. <laughs> the way Dark Depths works is it comes in with 10 counters. You pay mana to remove them, but it's exorbitant amount of mana. You need to put 30 mana into the thing to remove them. If you have some way of getting all those counters off at once you immediately get the benefit, and Dark Depths is sacrificed, and if you do sacrifice it, you get a 20-20 indestructible flyer, Merit Lage. 
So the original combo was with Vampire Hex Mage, which is BB for a 2-1 that you can sacrifice to move all, remove all counters from something. Sacrifice this creature, Vampire Hex Mage, remove all the counters from Dark Depths, get your 20-20. As soon as Thespian Stage was printed, so, though, yeah, it but became some of these, a lot... Well, some of these dredge decks do have Vampire Hex Mage. I just want to point I, that I know, out. I know. I wanted to get to that. Yeah, okay. But that was not, it was not a 7% representation in the metagame when it was just Vampire Hex Mage. When Dark Depths came out, it, you get an all-land, uncounterable combo where Dark Depths and Thespian Stage means you can put two mana and tap thespian stage have it copy dark depths it's a legendary land so you only get to keep one of them but the beauty is is this copied thespian stage doesn't get any of the counters so it immediately satisfies the trigger condition of if there's no counters on dark depths what that means though is you have to do the order of operations very carefully you activate thespian stage targeting dark depths when that ability resolves you get a dark depths with no counters on it but the first thing you have to do is resolve the state-based effect. Yes. Because both lands are legends. legends. And thanks to the current legends rule, legend rule, I should say, you just you simply choose one of the, the legends you have that are the same and, and sacrifice the others. So you should wisely choose to keep the Dark Depths that has zero counters on it, sacrifice the original one that still has all its counters. Once you've done that, then you get a trigger off of the copied Dark Depths with no counters that says, hey, sacrifice this and you get a Merit Lage. Once you do sacrifice it, when the triggered ability resolves, then you put Merit Lage into play. So two lands plus two mana, do it all at the right time and you get Merit Lage. But there are several key interaction points in that where your opponent can disrupt you. <laughs> the most common one is Wasteland, right? Yes. So let's say your but opponent you have to has time it. You have to time it precisely. So go ahead. That, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what we're really getting at here, is you have to time it precisely. <clears throat> if your opponent has Wasteland in play, and you choose to simply activate Thespian Stage targeting Dark Depths, there's at least two places they can disrupt you. They can waste the Dark Depths in response, thereby denying you the thespian stage copy ability because its target won't be there on resolution they can waste the thespian stage in response before it becomes a dark depths at which point you'll just be left with a dark depths with 10 counters on it but the absolute best way to disrupt the combo is to wait for the activation of thespian stage to complete wait for them to sacrifice the original dark depths that had the 10 counters at which point the trigger for the new dark depths with no counters will go on the stack that's the best time to waste land because what that means is you waste them in response to that trigger the trigger when it goes to resolve says hey did you sacrifice this no because it wasn't in play that means they won't get merit lage and they don't get to keep either of the lands <clears throat> so that's the best case scenario for if you have a wasteland however most dark depths playing opponents with thespian stage that is will understand this interaction and they won't proactively activate their combo in the face of an active wasteland. What that means then is that you're forced to sit there and keep that wasteland active because if you act first with a wasteland on either land, they get to activate in response and the whole combo happens in response to the wasteland. So that is the key thing to remember. Your wasteland versus their combo, you need to wait. Both sides need to wait and find a situation where one side is compelled to act. An additional wasteland on either side will, will compel the other to act. Uh, any kind of tapping ability, say Rishidan Port or uh, Tanglewire, that would cause any of those lands to be, well, because the Wasteland or the Thespian Sage become tapped, in either of those scenarios, one would be forced to act. So those are the kind of edges you're looking for. If you're trying to fight this combo, especially from a Workshop deck or any other Wasteland deck, you need to be very careful about how proactive you are and how the, your opponent could trump you 
by drawing extra copies of things or extra wastelands of their own. And that's to say nothing for all the myriad removal that interacts with the scenario. Merit Lage is indestructible, so your uh, not many destroy effects exist in, in Vintage these days, but none of them will work. <laughs> but your Swords to Plowshares does work, and your Jace the Mind Sculptor bouncing ability does work, but the combo is instant speed, so you'd have to force them to act in your turn during your main phase in order to affect Merit Lage with a Jace the Mind Sculptor. What other interactions are you, are you thinking of that I'm... No, that's that's it. I just think people need to know that that you have to that, that you have to place you have to activate the wasteland once after the legendary abilities have state-based abilities resolved mm-hmm. and and the, the triggers on the stack. The, exactly, the triggers on the stack. Yeah. It's worth noting that there is there is only one triggered ability in that whole interaction. So when you say in response to the trigger, you really are meaning only one juncture. Everything else is an activated ability or a state-based effect, but that trigger from dark depths with no counters is the key. <clears throat> so it seems like increasingly if you're preparing for an online vintage event, you you need to be aware of that because multiple archetypes could be employing that combo against you, and it could very well be that it bleeds into more archetypes before we're done. So, Steve, we have a few more directions we could go with this still. We've got some implications from all this metagame uh, analysis. We also have a little bit of data we want to point to from the premiere events. Where would you like to go first? Um, not sure. Where do you... Uh, I think we should talk more about... Let me see. Hold on. God. I think we should talk a little bit about some of the diversity in some of these specific archetypes. Why don't you go ahead and take that away? Well, so the biggest example you've already covered, I think, in workshops, right? There's far and away the most are Ravager shops, but there's another six or seven or eight splinters thereafter, which I think you did a good job of summarizing. Same thing with Dredge, really. There's a couple of dominant builds of Dredge, the more traditional ones that just have, I should say, just have uh, the Ingachu or Wismare Nature's Claim kind of removal packages. But Pitch Dredge is gaining in popularity increasingly. And Pitch Dredge, for those who don't know, is features heavily counterspells. Blue counterspells in the form of Force of Will, Mental Misstep, and usually Mindbreak Trap. All, which, all of which can be paid without mana. That's where it gets its title of Pitch Dredge. And all of which are critically disruptive to certain archetypes, right? Force of Will is incredibly good against workshops. You force that first sphere that they're counting on to stop you from playing Cobble Therapies and Dread Returns. And that's a that could be a match-winning play. Similarly, you mental misstep that Graph Digger's Cage that many other decks are playing. That's also a potentially match-winning play. So that's why Pitch Dredge is becoming so popular. In terms of the splintering of decks online, the next one, which we've already alluded to, is Oath. And it turns out, once you factor in all the 3-1 finishes, Odd Oath is far and away the most popular Oath list. But as we've said before, that is promoted by just a short list of players, uh, originally by Rich Shea and taken up by others. And humorously, the next most appearances from an Oath deck is actually Oath Still, which is a Landstill Oath combination a hybrid of those two decks, which takes the best of both worlds. It adds some Mishra's Factories to the Oath strategy, which has some inherent synergy, of course. Old Oath decks from from decades past used to love using those creature lands. And then add that to the Oath package, such that your opponent is uh, damned if you do and damned if you don't. I find it hilarious that on online Gristlebrand Oath decks are are the they're, you know they're the the exception they're in the single digit percentages whereas Odd well, Oath is fully five percent. <laughs> well, some of the Gristlebrand decks that were online online were la- were Oath still. <laughs> that, that's then, what I'm, yeah. I know. But 
So there's some overlap, right? Gristlebrand Oath still takes a few different forms. It might have an Embercool, it might have a different creature, it might have Show and Tell, it might not. But it's interesting to me that Odd Oath is so much more popular. But then the next big splintering has to be Mentor, right? We've alluded to it before, but Mentor takes numerous forms online and in paper. You've got your Jeskai builds, you've got your Esper builds, you've got your Bant builds, right? So in Jeskai, they're preferring Dak Faden with Ingot Chewers in the sideboard, some Lightning Bolts, perhaps some Young Pyromancers, and uh, you know, that's, that's the, the, the hits from Red. The Bant Mentor decks are featuring Sylvan Library, some Nature's Claims, and the Esper Mentor decks are heavily featuring the Black Restricted spells, but also powerfully relying on Cabal Therapy and its synergy with token producers. But on top of all that, there are there are diversity even in those breakdowns, right? There's Mentor decks with Dark Confidant, Jace Vrin's Prodigy, uh, there's ones with Fast Bond and Tendrils, there's ones with Counterbalance. There's quite a bit of diversity and and exploration going on inside of the mentor archetype these days i think uh, you know i i wanted to cover the difference different strains of mentor the different strains of oath the different strains of shops and the different strains of dredge i think we've done all that so no granted there is diversity amongst other archetypes it's just the numbers aren't very large grixis control there's lots of fun ways to build that land still has just lots and lots of variety but the number of appearances are small so you don't get uh, so much bang for your buck when you talk about the diversity but the key is is that in terms of the top three or four archetypes, just grouping them and saying shops is 30%, dredge is 15%, uh, could lead you to, meet, to reaching some bad conclusions if you're not familiar with the various distinctions. As it pertains to shops, you really, really, really do need to be prepared for the, the Ravager aggro builds. There's been a lot of con uh, consolidation around those lately. You still need to understand the distinction between those and Metalworker, Forgemaster, uh, Uba stacks even, and these Genesis Chamber Affinity decks. I mean, there's still some key differences that you'll be caught with your pants down if you don't understand them. What, so what does this all mean for the format? What does that mean for positioning yourself, deck selection, what do you, and what do you think it means for abandoned restricted list policy? Well, there's been a lot of hullabaloo about how workshops are still oppressive and also a little bit of hullabaloo about how Dark Petition is so strong, mostly surrounding the, the VSL. Uh, speaking from a dominant standpoint regarding workshops, I think that, as you and I have alluded to about years past, this current uh, scenario, the balance of power in terms of workshops appearances and their top eights and their wins is not special. <laughs> it's, it's status quo for vintage. I mean, it vacillates and goes in cycles, as you said, but this particular period of time is not especially noteworthy in terms of representation by workshops. It, uh, it's interesting that workshops are still performing so well after the chalice restriction, but that chalice restriction came at a time when several other things changed, namely thirst and dig through time, and also a little bit of new printing and hangerback walker was still fresh. So there was a lot of change going on at that time. 
And what that has suggested is that Chalice may not have been, it was not the linchpin that was keeping workshop decks in the position they were in metagame wise. A lot of people from a banner restricted list policy have said that they want to see Lodestone Golem now. Many people, yourself included, were on that train before the Chalice restriction. A few more people, I think, have jumped on it because I guess they were expecting workshops to sink down into the 10 to 15% perhaps range of the metagame. But that hasn't manifest, and I think a number of people are still frustrated that that workshops is still as strong as it is. But from my perspective, there's simply nothing about these results that suggests action is needed. Yeah. And the dramatic difference between paper and online as it pertains to Dark Petition, for for example, is fascinating and really calls into question any action that you might take against Dark Petition itself. Yeah, I, I think you pretty much said it all. So I think a lot of attention has gotten on whether workshops are too good, Lodestone Golem's too good. And a lot of the VSL members have talked about whether Dark Petition should be restricted. Randy Bueller said he thinks both Dark Petition and Lodestone Golem should be restricted. I think this data is clear that Dark Petition isn't, isn't even a consideration for restriction. I mean, seriously, um, it's, it's doing okay, but it's, if anything, Dark Petition has just made that archetype viable for the first time in some time. And I think that's a, a good thing. That's, a, that's yeah. a, a meritorious and almost entirely worthwhile, you know, thing. So I wouldn't, I, I just don't see Dark Petition as a serious consideration for restriction. And if anyone really believes that, I think they should just look at the data. The data is unequivocal on this point. Um, as, res- as regards yeah. Lodestone Golem, I mean, I think there is still a case to be made that Lodestone Golem is oppressive. I mean, look at the results here. But, um, you know, my opinion was that if you were going to restrict Chalice or Golem, it should have been Golem. Um, I think Workshop Aggro is incredibly mm-hmm. potent right now. It's just the best deck. Now, the question is, should Workshop, if you're going to have a best deck, is Workshop Aggro probably the one to have? I don't, I don't have necessarily have a problem with that, but I don't, I don't think that restricting something from Workshop is entirely unreasonable given this data, especially if they're going to restrict Chalice. Well, I, I, you and I have said on the show, and I think I have an even longer view than you do as it pertains to banner restricted policy. I mean, but I really would like to see this current iteration of the metagame play out a little bit more. And the reason, one of the reasons I feel that way is because the last time we did this, the workshop numbers were so much higher that it's it's hard to conclude at this time without, we don't have amazing, amazing metrics on this. I mean, daily events are nice, but they're still a small sample size over the course of a month. <clears throat> it, we cannot say whether or not workshops has reached a plateau or whether or not it's still diminishing from that 50% number that we arrived at last time we did this thorough analysis. It could be that workshops are still diminishing, could be that they hit their floor and they're rising again. We, we really don't know. And other things are still changing along in the background. There's more and more mentor variety than there was last time we did this. There's more and more oath variety, more and more dredge variety. All these archetypes are, are still shifting and moving and there's new technology coming out. And I, it's not, I'm not meaning to say that, say, Odd Oath is a, a metagame solution. <laughs> it's going to shake everything up. But but good grief, it's it's become the dominant Oath archetype online. Well, and Oath I, is in I, third place. I mean, that's a there's so much going on here that the, the system is so complex that I just feel like it's 
I just feel like it's it's premature yeah, to draw I, any conclusions. I also think that you have to look at the data a little bit for um, you kind of have to look at it for like what's recent and what's not. Um, you know, in auto auto, I think yeah, I True. think auto kind over. of is more heavy in the the February period. I think is is much less frequently in the more recent March data sets. Uh, in the the archetypes that people you know what's interesting but that serves yeah, my point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one's no one seriously thinks something should happen to that. I think I think though that we should flag for our audience some of the more recent trends though. Um, the Blue Moon deck, the more re- recent version of that with Blood Moon, is just it, taking off mm-hmm. in the format right now. I mean, it is. <laughs> it's taking off. I mean, there are like a ton in the last week or so of results with Blood Moon and some number of Planeswalkers and things like that. So anyway, and that deck is. Uh... That's just more uh, cyclical behavior, I think, because as you and I discussed after NYSE last year, that deck was a standout from that top eight, and it did a little bit in paper around that time too, because the list that JP Kohler played into top eight at NYSE was very similar, inspired by some lists that were doing well in Europe at the time. I I, I think that's an interesting example of things that things that ebb and flow. I don't think that deck, for example, can become dominant in the metagame because I think it's it's trading on metagame positioning as opposed to power. It's the sort of deck that's easy to to dethrone if if it becomes good. I completely I completely agree. Yeah. Whereas you can't just dethrone workshops because of their raw power and the and the overpowering uh, games that they can play. Same for Dredge. <clears throat> But I'm just saying your example about Odd Oath having spiked in February. Well, that just serves my point is that clever deck designers inside of a semi-oppressive workshop presence are still coming up with new and interesting things that that put pressure on these accepted concepts. The dark, the dredge decks, the pitch dredge and the dark depths dredge lists, for example, are good examples of this. I just, uh, I'm just of the of the impression that right now, even though 30% online sounds like a lot, it's way down. And I guess yeah. it, we, we could have had an interesting conversation. Well, well, the last time it, it's way down, it's way down from from what? Because we the last data we did was right. right before Chalice was restricted, right? So we haven't actually been looking at data for the last the last two quarters. I wish of we had talked more about it at the time. You and I, you and I have these conceptual conversations a number of times as it pertains to policy, but also design. Uh, when you looked at that data that we did and when Chalice was restricted, what would you have said was the desired outcome of a Chalice restriction as it pertains to Workshop's percentage of the metagame? And I have, I have to believe that at that time, we would have said we'd prefer Workshop's to be down around 20 to 25% online. I'm, I'm talking about online. I, I have to believe that we would have said yeah. that. We would have said we'd like it to look more like paper. We think that 20 or 25% would be would be yeah. interpreted as health. So that's why I'm saying I'd like to see this 30% play out a little bit more. Does it go back up again? Does it fall down to 25? I mean, does because even though the difference between paper and, and uh, digital is still striking, in terms of workshops, they're closer than they've ever been. <laughs> Which I think is an important takeaway here. Yeah, That could be the, the converge. It could be that these numbers are moving toward each other and that 25% is the, medi- the meeting point, at which point it's pretty hard to defense that the chalice restriction wasn't effective. But to my point about con- complex systems, I am loath to base any result on just one thing. There have been new printings and other things happened at that banner restricted time. Thirst is among us now, that kind of thing. So there's a lot going on. 
I, <laughs> yeah. My sensation after looking yeah, at this it, data, it reinforces the sensation that I have when I'm building decks. When I'm building decks and preparing for a tournament, I don't feel any differently now in the paper world than I did last year, than I did the year before that, than I did two years ago, three years ago. I mean, I still prepare for workshops about the same. Yes, their tactics have changed. Yes, their ratios and things have shifted. Yes, Hangerback, Walker, and Ravager. But I just don't feel like the deck is more or less really oppressive now than it was two years ago in terms of my ability to construct decks. It could be more It could be more players. I mean, <sighs> so know, that's a, yeah, it's not just the deck. It could, it could be more players, and the players have gotten better. But I don't know. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, the restriction of Chalice has... In, has only made workshops in some sense easier to combat but but you know i'm reminded of the period in which mm-hmm. trinosphere was restricted and the ultimate result was to boost yeah. workshops for a period and part of that i think was that with the restriction of trinosphere it became less focused the metagame became less focused around shops and people stopped trying so hard to combat it and loosened up a little bit in mm-hmm. terms of their hate in terms of their technology and i wonder oh, if definitely. a similar dynamic is occurring that workshop is underestimated a bit and that's why it's exploiting it. it's a shame that we um, didn't do some some measure of know, this analysis I, in the weeks or months following the restriction or unrestriction sorry the dig through time chalice change i mean because what you said definitely did yeah. happen for the first several weeks. Uh, workshops, people just walked away from workshops because they assumed it was going to be dramatically worse. And there were all this this flurry of deck design and all right. these crazy things. That's part of what Bant Mentor came out of is the desire to play Nature's Claim. And just uh, several things happened at once. Thirst for knowledge. And workshops, I think, was way down. And I think people right now are realizing, oh, the deck is still quite good and we should be respecting it. But so I think I still think we're in a period of a little bit of uncertainty. The the push to develop crazy new things in the face of no chalices has has passed. And now people are a little more down to earth and realizing, oh, I still need to respect this archetype. <laughs> right. I just can't shake the notion that that this chalice restriction in terms of these numbers for Magic Online has had the desired effect. From 50 to 30, you could argue that 30 is still not the right landing point and not a desirable point, and and there's some merit to that discussion. I'll grant you that. But the the difference is is striking in terms of where we were. There's no denying, though, that if you're preparing for a daily event online, it's still enemy number one in terms of how you need to build your deck and how you need to prepare. Yeah, I think I think that's quite evident. And and the workshop aggro decks are so brutally fast; it's they're really yeah. they're really kind of difficult to combat. Right, right. But not impossible. I find the the dredge distinction, second place online and tenth place in paper, to be to be a real. Um, that's just a real head scratcher. Well, we spent a lot of time trying to discuss that the last time we did this. And yeah. I think one of the conclusions that we came to certainly is not even close to most of the explanation. But a factor is that online facilitates playing dredge so much more uh, efficiently and optimally because yeah. it reminds you of all the triggers. Um, I also suspect that the capacity to experiment is a little bit more open online because you have so many daily you know, daily events. Sure. So you can just run something in and, and tweak and, and tune it's hard so to dredge. iterate on dredge in paper. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a lot of work, I should say. Harder. That's a good point. Yeah. It, it, when you're iterating on another deck, when you're iterating on workshops, for example, you fan open an opening hand. You say, "Oh, this looks good." You draw a couple. You play a couple turns. You draw. That's great. Those that exercise because workshops 
are low spell count, low card volume archetype, it's easier to test. Most decks are easier to test. Dredge is the sort of deck where by turn two or three, you want to go through 50 plus cards. And so the mechanics of testing the deck are actually take a lot longer. If, if you're willing to, to dredge five cards here and six cards there and do that, your turn still, even when you're testing and going fast, just take a lot longer. I respect people who iterate on dredge and get a lot of reps in with it quite a lot for that. I was I brought up dredge in the paper world because it is it's almost <laughs> no that's not true it's almost equally I should say I was gonna, I almost said more that can't possibly be right it is competing very powerfully with workshops in terms of sideboard attention most decks these days start with six or seven anti dredge cards in their sideboard the greedy ones only have four you know the overcommitters have eight or nine it's very similar to workshops most people have six like a land and four or five removal spells and then maybe a couple other role players dredge and workshops makes up the vast majority of your typical sideboard these days and that is crazy when you consider the representation because workshops are up in the 20 percent range and the paper results show dredge at two and a half percent i mean it could be the situation that the sideboard cards are just far more effective against dredge, and those those uh, five to seven cards that people are packing are keeping dredge decks from making top eights. And that if we all stop doing that, then our decks, our top eights, will be thirty percent dredge. It could be that, but I find it I find it just statistically anomalous and super unsatisfying that dredge is represented so poorly in top eights, but we all still have to respect it so much. Let me just list a couple of decks that are right alongside or even better than Dredge in terms of top eight appearances in paper. Doomsday, Hate Bears, Painter, Bomberman. All all of those decks do as well or better in terms of top eight appearances in this data set than Dredge. And have you ever put a sideboard card in your deck for Bomberman? (laughs) Have you ever sideboarded for Painter? (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Yes, actually, but yeah. Back in the day, sure. But... uh, these are hate bears. You, you barely even consider these decks. You're just thinking, if I play against hate bears, I guess I'll bring in this one thing. You know, maybe I have an extra swords in my sideboard. Maybe I have a toxic deluge if I'm on Grixis. But you got one. It, that's what I'm talking about. These other decks that are three percenters, they barely even cross your mind when you're preparing. But all of us have four to six cards for dredge. This two and a half, three percent deck. It's really, really interesting and, and strange. But online. Not the same thing. Dredge is your second best performer. Yeah. All of your sideboard slots are really, really, really well positioned. And then it's well positioned, but uh, uh, well deserved, well earned online. <clears throat> Still, Steve, we've got some good data we want to point our audience to also. The premier events from the last two months of Magic Online Vintage are compatriots on the mana drain, specifically Matt Murray, who goes by Chubby Rain, and Ryan Eberhard, who goes by Diofan, yes. have. Yes. Com- have compiled some really really cool data and it's slightly different than what we're talking about here because they've gone the extra mile and looked at all of the decks in those yeah. premieres not just the top eight well, or 16 well one of the things that you so, so we just you know we speak in broad terms we make generalities but it bears mentioning that the data sets that we have are not the full data sets in any room for the most part mm-hmm. they're the data they're the data that makes top eight the top eight deck mm-hmm. lists and what they have done is a tremendous service. I did one. I did this, I think, in December, where I tried to um, take a look at all of the what's the metagame breakdown for the premier events because you can mm-hmm. go back and watch the matches. They took it a step further and actually did the whole data breakdown, not just the um, 
the um, what people played, Not but they the also looked at yeah, but they looked at the well. I did a whole breakdown from first to last place, but they did a breakdown of win percentages. One of the things that, mm-hmm. that someone emailed us about, Kevin, was how do you deal with you know, mirror matches? You know, mm-hmm. How the affects the the and they've actually been able to take that out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mirror they, matches, that is mirror matches. The more populous a deck is, there tends to be more mirror matches, which then skew your your results towards the mean. Yeah, right? you're referring to you're referring to match win percentage, which is the exactly. key thing you get when you get to uh, analyze the full performance of all the pairings which they've yeah. done for us. Match win is the sort of thing that you and I would love to discuss in more detail as it pertains to all of these metagame analyses. But as you're alluding to, as a deck approaches a higher saturation in the metagame, its match win percentage tends toward 50% because the number of mirror matches go up. And they've done us a service by excluding mirror matches from some of their results, which has a powerful impact on the highly represented decks in the metagame, your your workshops and your gush decks. It's really interesting data. We're not going to go through it all in great detail here because, well, it's just too much combined with what we've already said. But if you want to go, we'll have the links in our show notes they have provided a post on the Mana Drain for the January premiere event as well as the February one. Hopefully they'll keep going. If you guys are listening to this, it's a great service you're putting up here. Please do continue. We have some listener feedback since our last episode, and I want to touch on a couple of these because we love it when people write in with ideas and questions. Friend of the show, Lachlan Saunders, who is a judge, wrote back about specifically about our last set review, Oath of the Gatewatch, and the interaction of Snapcaster Mage with Surge. I think we mentioned once or twice when we were reviewing Surge cards, specifically Crush of Tentacles, about how Snapcaster Mage and and Surge would be good in conjunction with each other. But that's not really true. (laughs) Because unfortunately, as uh, I'm quoting Lachlan here, a note regarding Snapcasting a spell with Surge, unfortunately, you won't be able to pay the Surge cost after you give it flashback with Snapcaster. This is because Surge, much like Gush or Force of Will, is an alternate casting method, doesn't interact with flashback. So if we said that, uh, specifically pointing to that interaction, we apologize because that is completely correct. You can't Snapcaster Mage and play the Surge cost. It's uh, similar to the distinction between Snapcaster Mage and Jace Vrin's Prodigy. So... Apologies for that. Thank you for the clarification, Lachlan. We always appreciate that. Yeah, we we had some issues with that, but I'm glad we were able to, <laughs> to tie that well, one up. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think we knew we knew what it meant. We just kept slipping back and forth, just like we did with Artifact and... Uh, <laughs> oh, it's the worst with the Eldrazi. Colorless, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and we've got another question, an interesting topic, I think, from... This comes from John Rosecki. John says... You'd like to hear a discussion on how playstyles differ from other formats, probably specifically Legacy and Vintage. What changes does a player have to make in order to adapt to the format that may or may not be obvious to, to a new player? Steve, it, we may not be the best people to answer this, just because I think it's been a little while since you <laughs> or I have played yeah. Legacy. <laughs> but yeah. to clarify, Steve, you and I both have played much Legacy in our day. It's just that it hasn't been for the last couple of years. I'll take a stab at this and then I'll toss it to you. I would argue that Legacy, specifically Legacy, uh, has a number of decks that work on far more incremental advantages. And by that I mean the 
the best card I think to typify this is the card Stifle. Now I know Stifle's not rampant in, in Legacy, but it's a poster child for the fact that you can play an almost pure tempo game in certain matchups in Legacy. You can stifle a fetch land, you can waste the next land, you can eke out little advantages, but the game won't end very quickly. Uh, games can last many turns where you're getting incremental advantages with tight play and and tight um, management of resources. Days is another good example of this. Days is completely unplayable in Vintage. Part of it is because uh, the Moxin just uh, overwhelm it in so many cases, but also because of interactions with other archetypes and wastelands and days is not very good against workshops for, because you don't want to pick up your first land. There's lots of reasons. But I would argue that a format like Legacy really does reward decks that make incremental advantage over longer periods of time. You've got your miracles, you've got your lands, you've got your various iterations of Threshold slash Delver slash Tarmogoyf decks. There's not to say that there aren't explosive decks in those formats, but I think that's one of the biggest differences is Vintage does have incremental advantage, but the games tend to pivot and end faster when those incremental advantages are manifest. A wasteland in Vintage, a single wasteland, could be could result in, in victory in a turn or two. It's not quite as common in Legacy. You're rewarded for playing more carefully over a prolonged period of turns and games. And I think that I think that same thing manifests then for the newer formats of Standard and Limited, whereby games last longer in terms of number of turns, and the the uh, decisions you make and the advantages you get are more distant into the future. You're planning farther ahead in all of these formats the slower they are. What do you think, Steve? Uh, I think that Vintage has very distinctive elements, structural elements, and gameplay elements. And for people who are trying to consider getting into the format, there's really no other way to do it than to dive in. And I think... I think um, you know you could you can read up or you can experience people. <laughs> you know, there is some truth to the whole to ten thousand hour rule, the famous ten thousand hour rule. Right. Um, but I also think that you can get up to speed if you just kind of dive in and play a lot of uh, games. And there's probably no better way to do that than just entering in some of these dailies. Um, you know, a lot of the tactics, like you, you were saying, are similar and they spread across formats. But a lot of the tactics are incredibly unique. So yeah. And I would say one of the things we've tried to do in this show is dispel some myths over the course of the of our history. And I think one of the myths, there's this myth about vintage being ter- turn one format, which we've addressed on a number of occasions. But I think there's a corollary myth about about something about the games being kind of incomprehensible almost about some so much is going to happen that you won't even understand what's going on that's not true vintage has a lot of the same interactions that legacy has it just has a couple of key additional ones like mishra's workshop and bazaar of baghdad and a couple of others that you need to factor in and once you get past the notion that wow my opponent can play a turn one lodestone golem or they they can play bizarre go and then kill me next turn once you get past the reality of that then you start to appreciate all the ways and means that vintage players combat those things and as soon as you've done it a couple of times as steve's saying if you dive in and you do it a couple of times you'll say oh okay now i understand when i see that bizarre go i have this this uh, constraint placed on me. I know I need to play a certain way in order to survive and, and defeat that. Same thing goes with, you know, workshop sphere go. I, I understand now how my deck functions in that way <clears throat> and the constraints that are put on me. I feel like 
uh, I feel like once you get just the tiniest bit of experience with those, then you'll then you'll appreciate that, and then you yeah, can yeah. parlay that into, oh, okay, now I understand why people play all these sideboard cards and why they construct their decks this way, and now let, let me just try it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and even when you understand, though, it's applying it is, is a different thing altogether. So knowing timing and all that, it just it's not easily taught. Yeah. Steve, you and I have, we, we spent a lot of time theorizing about what changes across formats and we use we use certain unspecific terms like speed for example which i was guilty of using a minute ago but i think one of the conclusions that you and i have both reached over a lot of time is that games of magic over across all formats feature similar amounts of decisions meaningful decisions is a term that you really like to use it's just that those decisions happen on different time horizons in vintage you might have to make several decisions on your first turn or inside of turn two legacy is very similar especially if you're playing a deck that's designed to be interactive like a tempo deck you might have to make several key decisions on turn one and in a slower format you might like like standard for example you might have fewer choices to make on turn one but over the course of the game you'll make a similar amount of choices it's just that game is going to last more turns and the thing you have to keep in mind is that decisions in Magic aren't beholden to a particular mechanical timeline. A decision that you need to make doesn't care what turn it is, doesn't care how much magic, how much mana you've got, doesn't care how many lands or creatures you've got in play. It is just a decision. And once you get used to the fact that decisions in Vintage frequently are compressed inside of the first couple of turns, similar but slightly more in Legacy, and then more and more as you get into the earlier, the newer formats, once you come to grips with that, then well, you can you can play any format. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, and also, Vintage is one of the easiest formats to get into because proxy tournaments. <laughs> so hopefully you live in an area where you could do that. If not, well, there's always Magic Online, and we're here to help. Thank you for listening to episode 51 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Game. <laughs> <laughs>